Good evening, everybody, and welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. This is session number 282, and this evening we're looking around, you know, for like it was supposed to be relatively easy to find the way to Moria, but when you misplace the river, weird things happen. Uh, so we're going to look at the passage in which Gandalf tries in vain uh, to find the river, which he made the rash assumption of believing would be more or less where he left it last time. Um, uh, but first... Um, it is our fundraising campaign, as I mentioned last time, and so we're going to do our weekly drawing, as I have, uh, as I told you guys we would do. But we missed last week. Um, in real time, those of you who are listening asynchronously won't notice the difference, but in real time, I had to cancel uh, class last week um, uh, due to some rather unfortunate events in my house. Uh, uh, but everything's fixed now, and uh, and we're back. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to do two drawings uh, uh, from the from the pool of folks who have filled out the drawing form um, that I mentioned. So I'm going to right now do drawing number one from the people who have filled out our lovely simple form. Okay. And our first winner is, our first winner is uh, Martin Prest, a.k.a. Boromir's Horn. Boromir's Horn. Uh, you are the winner of our, and remember, what do you win? You are going to be asking me. Remember that the prizes are your choice of either a free ticket to any one of our regional moots or a free one-month flight in, a, in the space class of your choice or a free uh, anytime audit. That is uh, any of the lecture uh, of the lecture recording sets um, from any one of our master's degree courses. So you can choose one of those three things: either the the lectures from one of our master's courses, or a free one month flight in space, or a free ticket to the regional moot of your choice. Um, uh, so that's for Boromir's horn. Now I'm going to pick the second one, and the second one is. Sorry, I'm rolling a, I'm rolling a D hundred, and it's really hard to get them to stop rolling. Okay, here we go. The second winner is, oh my goodness, the second winner is Scott Ald. Congratulations, Scott. Scott is the winner. Amanmoto. Excellent. Very good. So congratulations to Martin and Scott. And now um, we're, I'm going to officially, as of this moment, open the, um, um, open the, the, uh, well, not voting, uh, open the nominations. You can fill out the form again. It's the same form. I'm posting the link um, uh, on uh, everywhere where there are people, and it will be posted on the uh, in the description of the YouTube recording of this uh, of this episode, uh, so that people who enjoy this asynchronously, either in audio or video form, all you got to do is go to the Signum University YouTube channel, find the Exploring the Lord of the Rings uh, playlist, uh, and find this, and it'll it'll be in the description, so you can go to that link and just name it's just name and email address basically. Um, so if you filled it out before, totally fill it out again. Absolutely. Free game for everybody to fill it out again. Uh, that's, the whole, that's the whole plan and purpose. Um, uh, you can fill it, you can, you can enter every single week. 
Um, so we, I'm just going to draw from everybody who, uh, who has signed up on the form, basically from this timestamp forward. All right, awesome. And yeah, it's really cool if you, uh, you don't have to, but uh, people who are putting their, uh, uh, their uh, Discord handles uh, on there, it's helpful because I, like, I, I, I know who Boromir's Horn is, for instance. Um, uh, all right, very cool. So, um, yeah, yeah. And of course, as, uh, as uh, Matt reminds us, this is, of course, a celebration that we do in conjunction with our fundraising campaign. Uh, and we do encourage you to consider, if you have not yet done so, um, supporting Signum University with a tax-deductible donation. Um, we have been so grateful for all of the support that we have received, and we've received a great deal of support this year. Um, there are so many things that we are working on doing. Um, so many more, the, you know, the more we raise, the more opportunities uh, we have. Um, pretty I mean, all of the money that we raise goes straight into salaries for people like to be able to support the work that people do um us being able to being able to pay folks folks for the wonderful work that they do in making all of the signum programs possible um i um i love i love hiring people it's one of my favorite things uh and the wonderful opportunity to be able to give wonderful people jobs and for them to be able to contribute to furthering and expanding the work that we do at Signum. Such a wonderful, wonderful thing. Um, so um, anyway, um, uh, yeah, anyway, so thanks everybody. Thanks, thanks to all of you, uh, and I know so many of you, um, have donated or have uh, begun a, a regular monthly donation. Those are sort of especially wonderful. Uh, having regular and predictable revenue month by month throughout the year is, uh, wow, I remember how transformative that was in the early days of Signum University when we first began uh, being able to do monthly donations um, and uh, just just how transformative that was. Um, but all of the, the, the donations that are given um, have made such a big impact. Um, I don't really know of any other crowdfunded university um, that is just supported um, by grassroots donations uh, from you know its community of supporters like Signum has always been, uh, and we are so grateful for all that. Um, all right, let us um, let us jump back into the text. Um, all right, so we are progressing across the landscape here. Gimli now walked ahead by the wizard's side, so eager was he to come to Moria. Together they led the company back towards the mountains. The only, rolled, the only road of old to Moria from the west had lain along the course of a stream, the Saranum, that ran out from the feet of the cliffs near where the doors had stood. But either Gandalf was astray, or else the land had changed in recent years, for he did not strike the stream where he looked to find it, only a few miles southwards from their start. The morning was passing towards noon, and still the company wandered and scrambled in a barren country of red stones. Nowhere could they see any gleam of water or hear any sound of it. All was bleak and dry. Their hearts sank. They saw no living thing, and not a bird was in the sky. But what the night would bring if it caught them in that lost land, none of them cared to think. 
Okay. Um, the overall theme of these two paragraphs of this passage, um, I, I am put in mind of the scene in Holland just recently when Sam was on watch. Um, remember when, uh, when all of the company was having a good time and Aragorn was on watch and, uh, he came back and like, uh, killed the cheer, <laughs> right? Um, uh, and made sure everybody stopped having a good time, um, because he was saying that, um, the land had fallen completely silent and how, um, how ominous it began to sound to Sam. Remember, Sam took the watch after they all settled down, and, you know, after they all piped down and went to sleep, basically, for the day. Um, Sam was on watch, and he was... Uh, he found the the complete silence of the landscape increasingly eager. Now, or, no, eerie, not eager. Um, uh, I was looking up at the first sentence. Um, increasingly eerie. Now, we don't get the same emphasis on eeriness, right? Uh, you know, we don't, get, we, we don't get those same kinds of descriptions. But remembering back to that scene, I think we get some clear parallels to it, right? They saw no living thing, and not a bird was in the sky. The reference to birds being in the sky, right, is, I think, a particular memory of that. Because it was that, that silence that came before the genocide of crows, right? Um, so on the one hand, we get the, um, uh, we get the, the same kind of ominous stillness, no living things around, even though, as Aragorn has says, had said before, normally there are many living things that are in this area in all seasons, right? Um, but that they see nothing at all should recall that earlier moment. And remember, that earlier moment was like when everything else in the landscape knew that something bad was coming. It was the, the sort of... the unnatural stillness before an even more unnatural event, which was the genocide of crows, which is not normal, right? Um, here, there's one more... Um, it's one more level up, right? Not only do we get the absence of living things and birds in the sky, all right, not only has like is all of the normal fauna apparently in hiding, so also it would seem are the rivers, right? I mean, like the river itself is hiding from them. Um, and the result Right, the result of right hiding or fled exactly, Rin, which seems to be what has happened to the river too. Right, either the river is hiding or it has fled. Um, the the sort of the desert-like description: nowhere could they see any gleam of water or hear any sound of it. Um, it's like it's an even more deep. I don't know what removal uh, of anything that's living. Um, any normal, encouraging sound. Um, everything has been stifled. The land has been made completely desolate. Um, even the river has dried up and gone. And what is left 
is, as he says in the first paragraph, a barren country of red stones. Only the rocks remain. And despite um, their conversation with Legolas earlier on, um, that doesn't seem terribly encouraging. Um, so the way in which they are the kind of... Tolkien's don't use the word desolation, but the absence of the river, and again, the way that he emphasizes seeing any gleam of water or hearing any sound of it. Again, it's like people traveling in a desert looking desperately for water. It's not the situation, right? It's not that. It's not that they're dying of thirst or something like that. Um, but that it's, it's that it evokes that quality of desolation, right? And the, 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 the sort of increasing desperation um, with which they're looking for, the, because the waters will show them the route to the door. The door is not going to be trivial to find, um, but there's a, fortunately, there's a clear tell and an ancient road. Now, the road is very ancient. The road has been abandoned for thousands of years, so you're not just going to find a well-paved road. Um, but Gandalf's plan to navigate most surely and quickly is to head for the stream, which will have the ancient road next to it, and along that road and next to that stream will probably be a better way, you know, the, 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 the fastest and easiest and most direct way to get to the gate without having to hunt around and look for it, right? Um, and yes, Bjorning, I do think that increasing desperation is the feeling of these paragraphs, because as, as time goes on, the morning was passing toward noon, and still the company wandered and scrambled. Um, Remember, if it gets to nightfall, if the dark closes in and catches them outside of Moria, um, even Boromir's worst-case scenario, right? Well, remember, he wasn't sure what, what the worst-case scenario really was. But even the obviously bad scenario of being trapped between wolves and the, and the cliff walls, even that is going to be better than their situation here that is being swarmed by wolves in the open. Um, and it's passing, it's, it's getting to be towards noon and they haven't even found that, you know, step one was going down only just a few miles south. Um, right. It's, it's only a few miles southward from their start. Remember Gandalf said it was 20 miles uh, to the walls from there. It's supposed to be a, a, just a, a few miles south, and then they would still have most of their trip to take to go out there. And it's now almost noon, and they haven't even found the river. Um, there isn't panic yet, but yes, increasing desperation is definitely the um, um, is definitely the theme here. Um, yeah, and and it is as Bjorning reminds us, January. Right, the sun sets early. Um, if it's passing towards noon, they only have, you know, a handful of hours—what, five, six hours of daylight, maybe, um, uh, maybe less. Um, so yeah, it's um, uh, it is a, it is a, a pretty bad situation. And so again, the but but notice once more. Um, in that second paragraph, which apparently is where we're starting, because it's what I've been talking about, um, notice there's only one line 
in that whole paragraph that tells us anything about what they're feeling, right? Their hearts sank. That's it. Their hearts sank. Um, instead, we get description of the landscape. Them wandering and scrambling in a barren country of red stones. All was bleak and dry. Bleak and dry. Again, it this evokes their own feeling, their, even their temptation to despair, right? The bleakness of the surroundings um, and the unrelenting dryness of the landscape with no guiding stream to be found. Um, yes, and good, um, Maureen. The, Maureen is noticing the way that night itself is being uh, personified, right? what the night would bring if it caught them in that lost land, right? This sense of the night itself. Again, this, their situation is being put into these broad terms. Um, they're going to be killed by wolves. There's no reference to the wolves or anything else, right, that might come and kill them. But um, it's not, you know... But we don't need to talk about it. All they have to talk about is is the night. But Maureen, as you suggest, the personification of the night, or the um, what is what, what would it be actually like a lupinification of the night, right? Um, this doesn't talk about the wolves catching them. It talks about the night catching them, right? Because if the night catches them, that means the wolves are going to catch them. Um, uh, what the night would bring if it caught them in that lost land, none of them cared to think. Um, Yes, yes. Um, yes, Bormir's Horn, I agree. Three words to describe feelings and everything else describes the landscape. That is classic Tolkien, right? But again, what, what a lot of people miss out on, like the people who get annoyed by all the landscape description in Tolkien's writing, is that he is... And we've been seeing this pattern pretty clearly um, through The Ring Goes South and since then is that when he's describing the landscape, he is very frequently... Um, he is very frequently, like, showing us the attitude of the people um, through that landscape, right? Um, he's not just... Uh, it's, he's not just describing the landscape for the sake of telling us, you know, for the, for, for the sake of painting the picture. Amrea, exactly. He's describing the mood. Um, he's not just interested in the geography. He is... He is prompting us to respond in the same way that they do. Right? And again, the, the, reference, the, the references to the barrenness, to the bleakness, that, um, that, that sentence which, as I said, is, sounds almost like somebody searching for water in the desert, right? Nowhere could they see any gleam of water or hear any sound of it. That's not just land that's not just landscape description, right? There happened to be no water near where they were. Um, trivia point, you know, like it that's not it, right? This is about um, nowhere could they see invites us to imagine um, how, again, with increasing desperation, they are scouring the countryside, just hoping for the faintest gleam or hint um, of running water, right, um, to come to their eyes or 
to their ears. Um, the landscape is a character in Tolkien, uh, Kendall. I very much agree with that. Um, and this is one of the thing I've one of the things I've often said when I've talked about the landscape descriptions and such in Tolkien um, is that I think it has a lot to do with why people who love Tolkien almost all fall in love with Middle-earth itself even more than they fall in love with the story or with any particular character. Um, that is, I'm not saying 100% of Tolkien fans are like that, um, but it's a pretty pronounced trend, and I think it has a lot to do with this particular um, tendency of Tolkien, not only to describe the land, but to prompt us, like, we are interacting with the land in ways, like, emotionally interacting with the land throughout. Um, but, um, yeah. Anyway, um, okay. Um, yeah, notice, um, I was talking about the last, the two halves of the last sentence separately, but when you put them together, as Tolkien does with a semicolon, it's even more powerful, right? First, they saw no living thing, and not a bird was in the sky. Um, that recalls, as I said, the unnatural silence and emptiness of Holland before. But now there's, there's that still, but now there's a new angle to it, right? Before, they didn't know why. Why Why are the... Aragorn was just puzzled, right? Why should everything have gone away? What does this mean? Well, now they think they know what it means, both because last time that was the preamble to the genocide of crows, but also because they know, they know for a fact that the landscape around them is like lousy with wolf packs, right? Those wolf packs didn't just flee off over the horizon, right? They're lurking somewhere nearby um, and are going to close in on them again as soon as they can, right? So um, here it's just as ominous, but it's not as mysterious as before because they know um, the landscape, the things that they can't see. They're not seeing any living things and not seeing any birds in the sky, and that's both freaky and also kind of a relief as the living things they're afraid to see certain living things right and but so that's where the second half of the sentence comes in but what the night would bring if it caught them in that lost land none of them cared to think and what it's going to bring well more living things coming into view for sure right um yeah yeah um And yes, yes, that, that what the night would bring indicates their anticipation, right? Um, except this time again, it's shifted because instead of wondering and questioning and being uncertain, now they know, right? Now they know what's going to come. Um, maybe the genocide of crows will come back. Maybe the, um, so like, that's why no living thing and no bird. No birds, that's good. I mean, if the genocide of crows came back, again, the gen genocide of crows came back and attacked them, 
that would be pretty ugly, right? Um, uh, you, you know, uh, Alfred Hitchcock didn't make it up out of nowhere. Um, but, um, you know, so anyway. It's really a delightfully understated there's a strong current not just of fear but of trying to overcome fear right and again we get that one indirect reference to it none of them cared to think right so we're 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 told at the end that the very last phrase of the last sentence in the paragraph acknowledges that they're actively attempting to uh, avoid thinking about things, right? And that really brings to the surface what has already been latent throughout that paragraph, which is the um, this um, this fear that underlies. Th but they're trying not to panic, and they're trying not to. I, again, even just the morning was passing towards noon, and still, right? Smells of fear. Nowhere could they see any gleam, smells of fear and desperation. All was bleak and dry, smells like despair, right? Their hearts sank. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that's interesting, Leaf of Starlight. There is an element um, that is like Gothic novels in Tolkien's indirect dis descriptions of the world creating mood. Yeah, yeah. Um, Yes. Um, and Arnaud, you're right. There isn't a lot of overt trying to keep up hopes um, like previously in fear-filled situations. Gandalf isn't... Um, uh, Gandalf is not trying to um, jolly them along as he was overtly jollying before, right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um so let's um let's go back now to the first paragraph. Gimli now walked ahead by the wizard's side, so eager was he to come to Moria. It's interesting that we begin these paragraphs with the eagerness of Gimli. Um Gimli is charging ahead, right? Um Gimli is delighted. Um, and yeah, uh, we start therefore with this sort of, um, positive, um, this positive note, right? Um, and it trying to think of the impact that it has in the context of this paragraph and the next paragraph. Um, yes, Lincoln, you're right. Remember, uh, Lincoln is properly remembering that in the last, in the last, like the end of the previous paragraph was Boromir's declaration, right? Ending with his grim lead on, right? Um, so Boromir has just been stating 
that they're probably all going to die. Right. And then making his making clear his resolve to move forward and sell his life dearly. Um, and, you know, to pay to take the path that they end up having to to take. Right. So I agree with Lincoln that we have an immediate contrast to that in Gimli's eagerness. Um, there is at least one person and probably exactly one person in the company who is um, um, who's having a good time <laughs> right who has these positive uh, these positive things um, yeah yeah um, together they led the company back towards the mountains the only road of old to Moria from the west had lain along the course of a stream, the Saranan, that ran out from the feet of the cliffs near where the doors had stood. But either Gandalf was astray, or else the land had changed in recent years, for he did not strike the stream where he looked to find it, only a few miles southwards from their start. Um, remember Boromir has just said, lead on to Gandalf. And in the end, we were concluding, or at least I was concluding, as I almost always conclude when I look and think carefully about Boromir's words, that he's not being snarky or harsh, um, uh, but, like, actually, you know, politic and, and, and reasonably supportive. Um, but there is a kind of irony, right? He's just said to Gandalf, lead on. He has just, after having... You know, back in before the wolf howling was noticed, when they were still deciding what to do and it seemed an open question, Boromir was made the boldest move that he had yet not to, you know, he wasn't mutinying or anything, but he did seem to be putting himself forward as the potential leader of an alternative expedi expedition of anybody who wanted to go south with him instead of going through Moria, right? Um, um, I will not enter Moria unless the vote of the whole company is against me. Right? That that speech. Um, but after the wolves, he's been in line again, as emphasized by his final words. Um, by his final words, lead on. And then in the very next paragraph, we have the sinking concern, right? That Gandalf is astray. For he did not strike the stream where he looked to find it, only a few miles southward from their start. We don't get Gandalf explaining things, right? He could have done this in Gandalf's words. He could have had Gandalf saying either to all of them or to one of them or something like that. Like, you know, the only road of old to Moria, right? That whole, that sentence of historical, ex, you know, um, uh, exposition could have, could have been given to Gandalf as dialogue, perhaps. Um, but it's not. It's stated, we get that one sentence of narrative, like narrator ex exposition, in order to set up and explain what the problem is, right? There was a simple and good plan, right? Um, and, um, and Gandalf was astray. I think the effect of not having Gandalf 
explain that in his words. We've seen him do exactly this kind of thing, right? Even down to the, like, you will, some of you will have noticed that I led you further south than, you know, when we came up the mountain. I mean, Gandalf likes to explain his plans and what he does. Like, that's kind of a Gandalf thing, right? Um, and, um, uh, but he hasn't done that. And that we don't get Gandalf either confidently explaining his plan or talking about or attempting to spin or jolly them up in despite of the failure of his plan um, or grumbling about it or anything like that. Um, that's, that's, it's the absence of any words from Gandalf in this paragraph that seem in, that, that seems most interesting to me. Um, but either Gandalf was astray or else the land had changed in recent years. Instead, we just get the narrative's voice. And that leads me back to, by default, to the Hobbit perspective on things, right? They know what the plan is. Gandalf presumably told them. But we don't hear Gandalf's words. We're not given Gandalf's confidence. Instead, what we get is the traveling while remembering the fact that had been explained, presumably by Gandalf, and then the uncertainty. It, what's, what's, what's going on? It's not going according to plan. It, is Gandalf lost? Has the land changed in recent years? And I, I, I agree, uh, Dora Stoke, it is really fun to think that either Gandalf is so old, he hasn't been here you know, in like the the rivers have changed courses since Gandalf has been here, um, or that the land is sneaky and changing. Like again, like the as if the stream itself has like run away and hidden uh, from them. Right? Um, there is this um, dubiousness. Right? And again, I when the. We are not overtly prompted to associate the narrator with the hobbits. Um, other than in the notes on Shire Records, right? The fact that we know from within the narrative and from the prologue itself that, um, you know, the hobbits themselves are going to be the primary uh, tellers of the story, right? But so far, again, especially in The Ringo South and The Journey in the Dark so far, um, we keep getting the Hobbit's point of view. I'm thinking especially of the the evening in Carathras, right? Um, that was a very Hobbit-centric thing. Um, the march down through Holland and the passages you'll remember about the the cutting east wind and um, you know the sun coming around to the south, all the, all, you know the wind coming under the south and the sun coming out. All of those things. Um, it has been the Hobbit's experience and the Hobbit's feelings that we've kept coming back to. Um, so, so again, this, but either Gandalf was astray or else the land had changed in recent years. Um, seems to be like the Hobbit, it seems to me to invite me to imagine the Hobbits trying to understand what is happening and not panic. Um, the plan was a simple plan. There was a road. And even if the road isn't still there, there was a river. And the river should totally still be there. Right now, he calls it a stream. 
and not a river. And this, I think, is important because, especially if the land is rocky, a stream bed is not necessarily going to be easy to find if it's, in fact, completely dry. Um, but it could be very small, right? It could be frozen, um, it, but it doesn't seem that it's likely to be frozen as they're listening for the sound of water, which presumably they wouldn't be if it were, like, way below the freezing point. Um, but the... Um, but it's a, so I don't think because it's a stream, it's a little bit more stressful because if the stream were just gone, if it were dried up somehow, or if something, I don't know, had totally changed the course of that river um, from its source in rocky, barren land, they might completely miss where the stream had been. So going south, expecting to hit the road in the stream, they could keep going south indefinitely. They keep going south and get to the gap of Rohan and not find it, right? Um, so that sort of doubt, have we gotten turned about? Have we gone too far? Should we turn around and look? But that might take us more... Maybe if we'd kept going, we would have found the stream over the next rise, right? So maybe we just haven't gone far enough. And like That sort of doubting of yourself, that, that fear and uncertainty that grows, right? Now, they're not in charge, but which is more likely, that Gandalf is astray or that the land has changed? You know, both of them seem pretty, um, uh, seem pretty unlikely. Um, so yeah, yeah, I think that there's a lot of, um, a lot of fear, a lot of, uh, um, scary uncertainty here. Um, Kurtzimus, I don't know that we are explicitly, I don't know that we have enough reason, enough cause to conclude that Aragorn is out of his reckoning here. Um, but... I don't think Aragorn is not mentioned in either one of these two paragraphs. I think that that seems to me an interesting fact. Um, but let me tell you why. I think that is interesting. Not because I do not believe that it implies that Aragorn is not even being consulted or that Aragorn knows nothing. Um, we know that Gandalf has been taking the lead, and we know that Gandalf has been consulting Aragorn about the path that they're going to choose and take ever since they left Rivendell, right? It's been Aragorn and Gandalf. Gandalf is the leader, clearly, but Aragorn has also helped to be the guide at times. No reason. I have no reason to think that that situation is not currently true, but... Since the debate between Gandalf and Aragorn about which was the best way to get through the mountains... It has been an important question. Are we following Aragorn's plan or Gandalf's plan? And since the crossing of, Kara of the, you know, the Redhorn Pass was abandoned, it has been made very clear we're following Gandalf's path. So the reason I believe that Aragorn isn't mentioned as like trying to lead them or trying to help find the stream or whatever. Again, I have no reason to think he's not doing so. Um, but... Uh, but it's not mentioned because it is an important thing that it is Gandalf. who like This is the Gandalf show, 
now. This is Gandalf's path. We have uh, we as a company have put all of our eggs in the Gandalf leadership basket, right? That message has been pretty clear since they descended. Aragorn's um, concession to Gandalf, even Boromir's brief resistance was directed towards Gandalf and not Aragorn, right? And I think it's also important, given the um, foreknowledge, right, um, the, the foretelling that Gandalf did, that Aragorn did about Gandalf, right? If you, um, if you seek for the, um, you know, what if you pass the gates of Moria, beware. Um, I think it's important for us to be mindful that this is Gandalf doing it. Um, Aragorn is not dragging him to Moria. He is the one who is totally in charge about that, right? Um, now, but as I say, I see no reason to believe that Aragorn is not, in fact, trying to help all he can. Um, but I, And I also don't think there's any reason to think he's just never been here in his life. We know he has been here before. So why can't he help? I think that this shows the fact that neither that explicitly Gandalf and implicitly Aragorn are both struggling to find the Saranen where they expect to find it um, suggests that the change to the stream has happened recently. It's hard to say how recently, um, but... Um, uh, but recently. I don't think it's... Yes, it's probably been a long time since Gandalf has been here. But... I mean, it may well have been... We don't know exactly when either one of them came through. Both of them claim to have entered Moria. Gandalf and Aragorn, I mean. And we don't know exactly when. Um, I want to give it an exact date by which they did. Um, but I think it's... Um, I think it's... I don't see any reason to believe that they haven't been in this area at all in decades. In fact, I would be surprised if neither of them had been in this area within the last, say, 17 years. That is, the time since since Bilbo's um, departure um, and the initiation of the quest to figure out what the heck is up with the ring, which includes very significantly the hunt for Gollum. Right? Um, yeah. Um, now... Uh, Dolores asks, is there a misplaced stream like this in Lotro? Yes, but in Lotro, the Lotro adaptation suffers from one of the traditional drawbacks of their particular visual video game adaptation. Um, and that is they have consistently made the adaptation choice to make almost everything bigger. And for very good reasons often, I think. Um, 
But the result of that is that the Saranan, the gate stream, as it's depicted, it's really hard to miss the riverbed, the dry riverbed in the game um, because it was a large river. Um, apparently, in the game, it was a very large river, which, again, every almost everything is bigger in the game than it's described in the books. Um, and they usually do that because they're trying to create the same effect of awe and grandeur which Tolkien gives in words, but which if you depicted them to be exactly the same size as Tolkien describes them, would not inspire the same kind of awe that it does in the text. The most famous example of this, of, co of course, is the Stone of Erech, which is described as being about six feet in diameter, which when you come across it in a clearing looks eerie and weird and, and everything. But um, in a visual medium, in the video game, you would come across it and it would look, as uh, Chris Pearson once said to me, it would look like a coffee table, basically, sort of sitting there. Maybe a very large ottoman. Um, and so in order to make it stand out and give you this sense of eeriness, they make it enormous. And when you see it from the distance, it has that, it has that effect. Yeah, it's six feet half buried. Yeah, exactly. Um, so it only stands up about three feet off the ground. Um, and um, it certainly does make more sense for the Numenorians bringing it over on a ship, Leaf of Starlight, I agree. But no, they make in the game, they make the Stone of Erech like 20 feet in diameter, uh, something like that. Um, but um, anyhow, uh, so yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting... We'll, 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 we'll look at this in our field trip soon, the Saranan, I mean, and you'll see what I mean. But, um, uh, but the gate stream seems to be small, and the damming of the stream seems to have been recent. And we don't know by whom, and we're never going to be told exactly why. Um, and that's kind of the fun, actually. Um, uh, yeah. Um, and you're right. You're right. We do have at least an early date on when the Saranan was dammed. You're right. Um, because the Watcher in the Water took Owen. So it was a couple decades ago, at least. That's I'd forgotten about that. You're right. It has been at least a couple decades. It still doesn't... So, so no, that does show that neither one of them has come here in, within that 17-year period. So then when they were looking for Gollum... They didn't come here. Couldn't have. Because it was there. The Watcher in the Water was there. Um, when um, uh, when Balin's company. Yeah, that's great. That's great. I um, uh, I, had, I, had, I, had, I had forgotten that. Yeah. Um, well, let's... Let's sort of hold on to that a minute. Because... It isn't that the stream is actually... It isn't that there is no stream. Right? Um, hey, I have an idea. Brace yourselves. Let's look at a second slide. Suddenly Gimli, who had pressed on ahead, called back to them. He was standing on a knoll and pointing to the right. Hurrying up, they saw below them a deep and narrow channel. 
It was empty and silent, and hardly a trickle of water flowed among the brown and red-stained stones of its bed, but on the near side there was a path, much broken and decayed, that wound its way among the ruined walls and paving stones of an ancient high road. Ah, here it is at last, said Gandalf. This is where the stream ran, Saranan, the gate stream they used to call it. But what has happened to the water I cannot guess. It used to be swift and noisy. Come, we must hurry on. We are late. Um, okay. Um, so here's the interesting thing. There was uncertainty and fear. Did we miss it? Might we have overlooked it? They're looking for a stream. They're listening for a stream. And they don't find it. They do find it. And they find it by finding the dry bed. And notice that the dry bed is in a deep and narrow channel. It's empty and silent, which is why it was hard to find. They were expecting a noisy stream. Um, you know, Gandalf said it, it, um, it used to be swift and noisy. Right? So they were listening for the sound of running water, which they weren't hearing. But it means that they end up finding the stream bed and the road where they were looking for it. Right? Like it's, it didn't end up looking the way that they thought it looked, but it, ended up being in the place um, ended up being in the place where it was meant to be, right? So the um, going back for a second um, he did not strike the stream where he looked to find it only a few miles southwards from their start. that begins to look like Gandalf simply actually being wrong. Right? Um, the stream is where he looked to find. The water's not there, but the stream and the road that they were looking for is in fact there. Right? And so, yeah, Maureen, all the red stones, like the barren country of red stones, totally supposed to be there. Totally supposed to be there. Um, and yeah, yeah, um, yeah, I, and I wanted to acknowledge also several people have been making comments and discussing the, the redness of the stones. Um, I do think that there is like, does it make sense that the stones here would be red given that Karathros, the red horn gate? is standing there. Now remember, Karathros is red because the um, uh, Karathros is red because the the sunset shines on it, right? We saw it gleaming red in the sunset before. Um, but is there actual redness to the stone? Very likely so, right? Um, so is there a perfectly natural explanation for there being red stones in the barren country they're traveling through? Yeah, absolutely there is. 
But that, I think, from a narrative perspective, is not what really matters, right? I do think that those of you who are recalling Karathras, I think, are right to do so. Um, the land itself... Remember, they've already been in a fight with a mountain, right? It's not just the crows. It's not just the wolves. They were already attacked by a mountain. And now, this suspicion... Has the land changed in recent years? Is this entire landscape against us? Is somehow this land, which is Karathras-esque, right? Which is which is which is red like Karathras, is this whole land working against us in some way? Has it somehow concealed the stream and the road? Um That doesn't seem to make much sense. I mean, that's surely that would be such a thing would be absurd, right? But of course, normally one would say the same thing about a mountain attacking you. Um, so, um, uh, so yeah, um, I do think that the redness of the stones does suggest, at least at the very least, at a sort of low level, right? Um, a dread, at least, on the part of the hobbits and, 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 and perhaps the others, of a kind of malevolence of the landscape itself, right? They can't, they can't trust the land. And that's a weird place to be, right? Um, it's one thing to say, I'm going through this countryside, which is not attractive and not comforting looking, right? This rough, desolate countryside, and things are hunting me. Or at least they will be as soon as it gets dark, right? If I'm stuck out in the open in the dark, I'm, I'm dead. But if you actually are have reason to think maybe the, the rocks and the land itself is conspiring against us like that mountain did, that one, you know, right there, um, that's a, a, whole new, a whole new level, right? Um, so yes, exactly, Tessa. I do think that there's a good chance that Tolkien is mentioning the redness of the stones to keep Karathras in our mind. Um, it's looming over the fellowship, so it needs to loom over us. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, and yes, people are talking about, like, should you be picturing like Arizona or something like that? Um, and I agree that I, I don't think... I think if there were like sandstone pillars and and uh, uh, buttes and things like that, those would have been mentioned. Um, I suspect it's just boulders and uh, and rocky ground, um, but reddish, for sure. Um, yeah, yeah. Leave a starlight. I'm not sure what kind of rock, but I know someone who would know. Um, it was awesome at Mountain Moot in Denver a couple weeks ago. Um, a professional geologist gave a talk on the geology of Middle Earth, uh, in particular talking about like what kind of geological deposits could lead to um, mithril deposits in um, Khazad Doom, and in particular, and then and using that to speculate on what element um, mithril probably is. It was so cool, and um, and what was even cooler was there was this reference. He had like a footnote on one of his slides to another geologist who had a different conflicting theory about the geology of Mithril in Middle-earth. And 
Um, and it just it, it, it gave a glimpse into this whole like underground uh, like fantasy Tolkien geology subculture among the professional geologists. It was awesome. It was really cool. Um, so um, I'm uh, and there will be an opportunity, uh, uh, I hope, uh, for uh, for uh, some of you to see that talk who didn't get a chance to see it. Um, it'll be it, I'm hoping. It will be able to be available in uh, the new thing that we're going to be launching at Signum in a couple weeks. But more on that later. Um, but um, anyway, so um, I, I, it's it was awesome. Anyway, it, he would be all about this. He was uh, he was uh, it was really fun to hear a geologist talk about Middle Earth and like the 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 things that jump out to him from the text. You know, like he talked about like the limestone on the banks of the Anduin. And I'm like, there's limestone on the banks of the Anduin? I bet you're right. But, you know, like it never, it never jumped out at me. Um, but uh, anyhow. Okay. So, uh, but, uh, but, but I agree. The, the, the link to Karathras, I, I believe in that. I think that that's, I think that that's a real thing. Okay. Anyway. Whoop. Hang on. Back to where we were. Okay. So anyway, the point that I'm trying to make is I'm trying to figure out what exactly went wrong. Or did anything, in fact, go wrong? We're told Gandalf did not strike the stream where he looked to find it. But why not? Like, it was there. They do end up striking the stream. Exactly what they were... Again, it's not that they missed it. It's that... Yeah, I mean, it seems that Gandalf was disoriented. Or... Perhaps it's possible that the hobbits are just impatient. Right? Again, remember, we're getting no words from Gandalf. And notice, of course, as soon as we find the stream, we do get words from Gandalf here, right? Um, but we did not get words from Gandalf in that first description, leading me to think, or at least prompting me to kind of put this in the context of what's going on just inside the hobbits' heads, not what they're being told. Um, we're not hearing Gandalf saying, I could have sworn that stream was right here, right? He doesn't say that. Um, uh, yeah, it, maybe he's not exactly where they're, where he thought they were, right? Um, maybe there is some kind of a delay, but the not striking the stream where he looked to find it cannot be explained simply by the fact that there's no water in the stream, right? That could explain why he, they didn't have as much advanced warning of it as he expected to have, right? Because he expected to find it noisy, right? And he's surprised to find it empty and quiet. But again, that doesn't explain why they didn't come on it as fast as they did, right? Um, so again, I wonder... I wonder if um, the whole anxiety, even about Gandalf's losing his way, is only the narrator, not necessarily being unreliable, but the narrator prompting us not with what, telling us not what is factual, but what they were feeling, what they were thinking. Right? Finally, Gimli is there to um, um, 
Now, I'm not saying that I am necessarily convinced that Gandalf isn't disoriented and lost. There's the the best evidence that Gandalf that that leg of the trip did in fact take longer than Gandalf had predicted is his response. Here it is at last. Ah, here it is at last. Right. But I'm inclined to attribute even that primarily to the anxiety. They have a few miles south over rough and desolate country. They're not going to be going really fast. Right. And they're being told that there's a river. They've got to get south to the river and then they've got to go much further up the path along the river to get to Moria. And the sun is climbing and climbing and they know they're only a small fraction of the way there. And if they caught, caught out at night, they're dead. Right. So I think it's in all of them, Gandalf included, the anxiety. Right. Surely it's right over the next hill. Surely it's right over the next hill. And then it is. So this, the land has not, in fact, done anything weird to them, right? The land has not hidden anything. The, you know, implied or suspected, um, you know, malice or, or, or whatever of the stream, uh, you know, of, of, of the landscape hasn't manifested, right? Um, and, um, uh, so there seems to me to be kind of, a, I don't know, like a two-stage thing here. On the one hand, there's just the anxiety. Anxiety that was deepening towards desperation before they finally found the path, right? But then they find the path where Gandalf expected to find it, looking like Gandalf expected to find it, um, though it took them longer to get there than Gandalf hoped it would, right? Than all of them hoped that it would. And yet, actually, the land has changed. Oh, phew, fine. Look, we're right on track. Everything is right as we expected, except it's not. Right? This is where the stream ran. Saran on the gate stream, they used to call it. But what has happened to the water, I cannot guess. Something has happened. So something has still changed. Again, remember how I was talking about how in that previous paragraph, the second paragraph on the last slide, there was the sense like not only are all the birds and beasts in hiding or have fled, um, but even like the water has like gone away. Like you, even the river is hiding, right? And now we see that vague impression that vague and eerie impression even more eerily confirmed, right? April, when he says we are late, he's talking about their progress compared to the progress of the sun, right? It is getting late in the day. Um, exactly. Be honest, I wouldn't say it brings no relief, but the relief that they would feel on finding the stream and realizing, okay, phew, we're not lost. We're not going to just end up in the darkness here. Um, we've got a fighting chance of making, you know, the cliffs by dark. Um, I would think that that, that relief, it, it's that that relief is undermined by this additional mystery, right? Um, uh, yeah, 
Yeah. Um, yeah, Bjorning, I agree. It's like nothing is reliable, right? Um, yeah, oh, phew. Oh, the land hasn't changed, right? The path is still here. Oh, no. Actually confirmed the land has changed. And Gandalf doesn't understand why, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so that seems to me to be the effect of the finding of the bed of the Saranon, right? Which is clear. They couldn't have missed it. It's, it's a deep and narrow channel, right? There's no way they could have missed it in the end. Um, and even the path itself. Um, they saw a deep and narrow channel. It was empty and silent, and hardly a trickle of water flowed among the brown and red-stained stones in its bed. The red-stained stones certainly do sound like iron deposits, don't they? Um, but on the near side, there was a path, much broken and decayed, that wound its way among the ruined walls and paving stones of an ancient high road. Like, it's not just that they see and recognize the stream. They see and can recognize the, the, the road and the path. Um, they can see ruined walls and paving stones. Right again, they wouldn't have missed that either. So it turned out, it's not as. Um, um, turns out that it's not as as dubious. Like this whole question of like, have we got? Do, should we turn around and find it again? Right? No. When we get there, and remember, it's the Hobbit experience. They didn't know what to expect, right? Um, but when they get here, they're like, okay, yeah, this is just how it was supposed to look. Look, there's the road and everything, the ancient road. Um, we're right in the right place. This will take us right to where we're, we're going to go. That is reassuring. But then there's like the footnote, right? With the proviso that for some strange reason the land has changed. And it's changed just like the land was changing before. Again, whereas in Holland, the emphasis was on there are no birds. There are no... There are always lots of birds, but there's nothing. There's no sound. The land is empty as it... It's unaccountable how empty this land is. Now, the land is empty again in a new and unaccountable way. Now it's the stream itself. What has happened to the water, I cannot guess, says Gandalf, just like Aragorn couldn't guess what had happened to all the birds and all the other fauna um, in Holland. Right. Now, Gandalf doesn't dwell on this. Gandalf's, it seems that Gandalf's rather practical perspective is, I don't care, right? Um, uh, that might have nothing to do with us, right? Um, come, we must hurry on. We are late. Um, um, I think that is an interesting way. Um, you know, April, I think you were talking about that before, the we are late thing that he says. I think it's clear to understand what he means, Right. Um, we might say it's getting late in the day. Right. But by characterizing it instead, Gandalf instead saying we are late. Um, it is. Um, I think. Um, I think that's, well, what a constructive way to talk about it. Um, they're all trying not to think about the night and what will happen in the night, right? 
um, what he says by saying we are late. The implication, right, is we have an appointment. Like, when you're late, you're late to an appointment. We have an appointment at the walls of Moria by nightfall, right? Um, that's where our appointment is. We are currently late to that appointment. If instead he were focusing on the time getting like the time is getting late. Remember, night is trying to catch them. They're running away from the night. Um, it's a lot scarier to say night is catching up with us. We'd better go than to say we have an appointment here and we're running late for that appointment. Right. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I think it's, um, uh, I think it's a way of kind of turning things around that invites them. It's, it's basically, it's about what the image invokes. We are late invokes the image of we're going to arrive, but it might be after we expect it. Right. And sometimes there are consequences to arriving somewhere late. Right. Um, but still, we're going to arrive at the party. We just might be late to the party. Right. Um, or at least we will be late if we don't hurry. And that's a totally different thing than inviting them all to imagine the night is going to catch us. Right. The day is getting late. The night is coming. Um, that's a lot. It's saying the same thing, but it's a lot. It's a lot scarier. Um, yes, they they have an appointment with walls and or wolves. Almeria, I agree. I agree. Um, yeah, Kendall, that's interesting. It is kind of like reaching Erebor by Durin's day, right? Um, except the irony was, Kendall, they didn't even know when that was exactly, right? Remember, they were saying. The dwarves even were saying things like, and maybe it will be Durin's day when we get there, right? Um, they didn't even know how to calculate it, so they couldn't tell. Um, they were on a schedule, they just didn't know exactly what the schedule was. Um, but you're right. But you're right. Um, uh, yeah, so... Um, Okay. Back to Gimli. Gimli, once again, is the encouragement, right? Um, notice how the previous passage began with the emphasis of Gimli walking ahead by the eager, by the eager side, by the wizard's side, so eager was he to come to Moria. Notice what happens, though our attention isn't explicitly drawn to it. Now Gimli is pressed on ahead, right? Gimli's, Gimli's in the front now. Uh, Gimli's, Gimli's enthusiasm is only growing as they get closer and closer. Um, pretty soon, Gimli's going to be like out of sight up ahead of them, right? They're going to have to keep him reined in. Um, and I just love, um, I just love that. Uh, again, it's, you can miss this, right? Gimli walking up with the wizard. And now the fact that he has pressed on ahead as just a measure of his overflowing, um, his overflowing eagerness, 
right? And he is the one who calls back to them. He's the one who um, spots the stream first. Um, and so, yes, that he would find the way to, that the way to Moria would sort of open to Gimli, right? Would open up before Gimli. Um, it seems fitting in, in, in several ways. But again, it seems to me, remember what I was suggesting about this previous passage, that what we're getting in the absence of dialogue, what we're getting is this general, the sense of, of dread, anxiety, fear, even towards despair, that even some of the things that the narrator says, like either Gandalf was astray or the land had changed in recent years, like even these things are not necessarily the statements of fact, but like the, the anxiety thoughts, right, of the people who are walking. And even Gandalf is getting caught up in the anxiety, right? Um, everybody who travels... If you're worried about being late, every single, you know, mile that goes by feels painfully long, right? Um, and you're always making slower progress than you hope if you're afraid of being late, right? Um, Gimli is the only person who is not having the experience that is being conveyed by this. The hobbits definitely are having this experience. Gandalf's words betray the fact that he also is having this experience. Um, here it is at last. Ah, here it is at last, says Gandalf. He too was getting anxious. Um, not because the river wasn't where he expected it to be, but because he too, in his own anxiety and fear, um, uh, was found that the, the 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 tortuous and difficult path through the desolate lands to the Saranan was much longer and more painful than he wanted or expected it to be. They are late. That's what he is thinking, right? Gimli, Gimli is the only one who is not in the frame of mind that has just been described, right? Gimli. Um, time is flying for Gimli, right? Gimli is ranging on ahead. He is so excited to get there. He is having that experience that I think we've probably all had when we're traveling and like maybe when you're coming home from a long trip and like the, the things are becoming more and more familiar and you get more and more excited and before you know it, you're there, right? Um, that's, that's Gimli's experience. Um, and um, the way in which Gimli is separated from everybody else, it almost has, a, a, in a way, it, it almost serves to emphasize the anxiety, fear, dread, and despair of the rest of the party. That Gimli has, has now physically separated himself from the rest of the party, but he was always, um, in his outlook and attitude, different from the rest of the party. Um, that image of him on a knoll up in front of the party pointing down um, and then they hurry up and they see the channel, right? They see the hopeful sign that he has found. Um, really just kind of shows us 
Gimli has been having a very different day than everybody else has been having. Um, Kendall, he does not think he's about to reunite with Bowen and company. Um, um, I, they're all pretty clear that Bowen is dead. Um, Bowen and company have been presumed dead back in Erebor for a long time. This is a significant change that Peter Jackson made, and I think it, I, um, it's, um, it's on my bottom list. Um, in fact, of all of the comic relief things they do with Gimli in the films, this is one of my least favorite thing. Um, that's, Emily, what I dislike about it, is that it makes Gimli look stupid. Um, there is a payoff in the film. Um, that crushing sense of horror that crashes down on Gimli when he sees the uh, skeletons of the dwarves and stuff. The payoff there is, the emotional payoff in the film is, is significant. I can't say that the choice that they make doesn't work at all. But I find it in, I find it expensive. Like you're 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 paying a lot for that payoff. Um, it comes at a cost, and I find the cost pretty high. Um, but um, yeah, it's been, it's clear from the Council of Elrond um, when Glowen speaks of Balin's expedition that they're presumed dead. Gandalf has already said, as we saw. He's holding open the possibility that perhaps Balin is alive. Maybe. Right. But even when Gandalf raises that, it seems pretty clear that he's just trying to put a cheerful face on it. Right. Um, so, um, yes, exactly. Uh, Stun duck. There's that one line where Gandalf says that. And it does sound uh, almost like a throwaway line, but again, at least it's a, it's a very... Um, it's a forlorn hope of cheerfulness, right? Um, uh, nobody, I think, is really very convinced by that. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but, um, anyway, uh, so yes, we don't actually see, apart from the very indirect evidence of Gimli's um, uh, Gimli's excitement, right? And the even rather indirectly demonstrated eagerness, right? Like, it's, it's pretty subtle. Gimli coming up with Gandalf, Gimli pressing on ahead, right? Um, that's the only window that we get into the experience that Gimli is having. Right, but it's pretty suggestive, and but because it's at odds with what everybody else is feeling, that fact is acknowledged. That fact that Gimli is set apart from the rest of the company is acknowledged, but it's not it's it's not described. We we we're, we we are left only to um, to infer it uh, very very indirectly. Um. Yeah. So. Because anyway, if we got like a whole paragraph talking about how like giddy Gimli is as they get closer to uh, Moria, it would kind of kill the mood, right? And Tolkien doesn't kill them. He doesn't kill the mood. He just gives us enough evidence 
to imagine, to invest our own imaginations in, like, if we want to put ourselves in Gimli's shoes and try to imagine his own excitement, um, that he is, that today, this very day, he is going to get to arrive at Khazad-dûm, which he has seen in his dreams, apparently, but has never dared to think that he would approach in his own lifetime. And it's not only happening, it's today that it's going to happen, right? Tolkien is so good about this. Tolkien is so good about leaving things to our imaginations. And even in a situation like this with Gimli, having that invitation be extremely subtle and indirect, it's easy to miss. It's easy not to think about it at all. Um, but, but it's there. It's there, and we do have that invitation. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, Tolkien's engagement, his active engagement of, um, of readers' imaginations in, you know, like cooperation with, um, uh, with his story is, I think, just a huge, huge part of what makes The Lord of the Rings so successful. All right, that's going to end our book discussion tonight. Two whole slides, right? I mean, come on. Two whole slides, and I'm finishing on time. It's like, does this ever happen? Today's the day, right? Um, so don't forget, fill out the drawing form. We're going to do another drawing next week for another, another weekly prize. I'm reposting the link to our uh, drawing form uh, everywhere, and it'll be posted, as I said, in the, um, in the, uh, in the YouTube description for those who are listening afterwards. Um, but, uh, if you fill out, fill out the form again, fill it out again. If you filled out last time, got to fill it out again, or you won't be entered into the drawing for next week. For next week, we're only going to have people who have filled out the form between the beginning of class today and the beginning of class next time. So, um, uh, so fill out the form. We'll do another drawing next week as we get closer, as we continue through our fundraising campaign. Um, uh, for those of you who are uh, not able to join us on the field trip today, thank you for joining us. And uh, for those of you in America celebrating Thanksgiving, happy Thanksgiving uh, later this week. Um, this is going to be my last broadcast of the week uh, for that reason. I've got Thanksgiving-related stuff going on uh, uh, for the rest of the week. But... Um, we will do our field trip now. Unfortunately, uh, Valori couldn't be with us tonight, um, but um, we're gonna we're gonna continue on. All right. So let me. Um, I'm gonna have to do my thing, which I always do. There we go. Right, coming back in now. All right.
Yeah, Bjorning, I don't know if this one day of two slides is enough to throw off all the projections for when we're going to finish um, The Lord of the Rings. But, um, but you know, if we can keep up this pace. Who knows? Who knows? Maybe today is the day. Turn over a new efficiency leaf. Oh, and I agree, Everett. Um, another reason for Gimli's excitement would certainly be um, that um, would certainly be that the um, um, Dan has not has forbidden anybody else to go back to Moria. You know, he can't help it now, right? But the, there, there, there is that reason to believe that Gimli would have actively been like that before these last couple days he would have been under the impression that there was no way he was ever going to be able to go to Moria at least not in the like foreseeable future right um okay so where we're going tonight we are getting closer um I'm gonna be we're, we're gonna do field trips because you'll remember looking at the map here um you will remember when we did um Eregian, when we did Eregian. Um, we left out bits. We did the parts on the like the western side of the map, and we left out the eastern side of the map because that's where the story goes. So we we didn't look at the Redhorn Pass, we didn't look at the hill, the Wolf Hill, and we didn't look at the Saranen and the Walls of Moria. Um, so I'm going to wait until we get to the part of the text which describes the gates of Moria and then we're going to start touring through there and we'll cross into Moria then and we'll we'll um, um, we'll begin the exploration of Moria which may well last us as long as the book discussion of Moria who knows um, but tonight we're going to return so that's why we're doing Swanfleet um, both because it's a newer area that I've never seen before, um, so we're going to continue our exploration explorations there. I'm hoping to finish up our explorations of Swanfleet um, in time to um, uh, to then just continue over into Eregion and uh, and uh, get ready for things over there. So let us head down to we were at uh, Glynhelig, is where we got to last time. We just got the um, the milestone at that. That the second Hobbit village? We found it the second or third? I'll look at the map now to remember for sure. Um, it was second. Yeah. Klegur down here. And we started in Mossward, which is a human town. Then we found the first Hobbit uh, uh, settlement down here along the river. And then we're up in Glynhelig, which is up in the, up in the hills up here. Uh, from here, we'll head over to Lintra. So we got up here, but we didn't really look around. So um, one thing that I find immediately interesting about this, if you look about, so this is a, this is a, this is a fake smile, right? In the sense that it's a, it's clear, it's obviously a built house. There's, you know, but not only has this wooden constructed building been made to look like a smile, as of course we're told hobbits often did that. We even have like the turf, right? The turf walls and ceiling, like they've made it look as if it's a little grassy hill 
with a hole cut out of it, right? It's a whole a whole fake, um, a whole fake hill for them to have uh, for them to have a hole in or out of, um, and that seems to me interesting, given that it has no. It's one thing in the Shire, right? Where, you know, you say, okay, so like hobbits originally lived in hills, but as they expanded through the Shire, there's some parts of the Shire where there's, there aren't as many hills, right, to dig holes into. So instead of digging smiles in the side of hills as they did elsewhere, places like Tuckborough and, um, and uh, even over in Buckland and stuff like that, um, in other places they built. As we see, uh, you know, much building over like up in the Undershire when we were looking around there. Um, a, lot of, a lot of those brick smiles, right? Um, but here, but but again, there it makes sense. In the Shire, if you have, um, you know, the sort of the original Shire culture was smiles dug into grassy hills. And so then, oh, well, we're going to build houses, but we're going to make like fake grassy hills, right? We still want to have the same you know, homely association of the grassy hill, even if we have to build it out of wood ourselves, right? That makes sense in a Shire context. That's why what is so interesting to me about this house is that it's doing the same thing, but in an environment where grassy hills are obviously not the norm at all, right? I mean, we're on rocky crags here. I mean, maybe you could say, but even down in Cleghor, it was not a grassy hillside environment by and large, right? There were some hills that had smiles cut in them, but again, it was little foothills in front of big rocky cliffs, and there were smiles, wooden smiles, built up on the rocky cliffs, uh, just as this one is. Um, so this is what it's, what is interesting to me about this is that in this culture here, we don't have any reason to believe that there is a direct link between the culture of these hobbits here and the culture of the Shire hobbits. Direct link, causal link from the Shire, right? These are not Shire hobbits who have, you know, come down here, right? This is a, a, a sort of a separate branch of the general hobbit migration. We know that hobbits started off in Ravanian. Right, the earliest hobbits we have evidence of are the ones in the Vales of Anduin. In the in the um, prologue, we're told of times when you know the oldest stories of the hobbits remember the time when they lived over here on the other side of the mountains, um, and then they uh, then they crossed the mountains. And so in the game, they plot that pretty carefully, as we talked about this last time. Right, they, we we see in the game. The evidence of the old hobbit holes in the Vales of Anduin from 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 Smeagol's time, right? And then across in Eriador, we see them down in Enidwife, right? So some branch of the hobbits stayed down there, and some continued up north, right? Um, the, some of those would have ended up here in Swanfleet, right? So these are like the ones down in Enidwife, in the sense that they're probably an offshoot of some who came up this far and didn't leave, right? But then others left and went on up towards Bree, and then from Bree over to the Shire, and from the Shire up to the Undershire, right? Um, so that makes sense. But again, it's there is no reason to believe at all that the 
the culture and conventions of the Shire read back, you know, are influenced the hobbits who live here in Swanfleet. So it's possible, of course, that the building of smiles in Grassy Hills dates from the elder times, right? That there were grassy hills here in the foothills of the Misty Mountains in the Vales of the Anduin, and that's where, so that, like, the idea, the concept, right, of the typical hobbit hole built in the side of a grassy hill. Um, so this could be evidence that that archetype for hobbit dwellings goes way, way, way back, right? And suggests that it's not the Shire and the Shire's topography that made the smile. It was rather the hobbit's penchant for grassy hills that made them choose the the Shire in the first place. You see what I mean? Like it suggests that the um, that the direction goes the other way around. Now, you know, is that true to Hobbit history in Middle Earth? Well, we don't know, right? But I think that's um, that's very interesting and very plausible. Um, uh, and uh, I'm willing to go along with the the kind of these sort of uh, quasi archaeological. Uh, breadcrumbs, right, that the uh, game developers seem to be showing. And it's just, it's super striking here to me in this um, uh, in this particular environment. Like, that we're going to build a fake grassy hill to put a to put a fake hole in. Literally on the edge of a rocky cliff. Backing onto a rocky cliff, right? Um, that's, you're going way out of your way for that construction. And I think that's very, very striking. Well, let's continue on. Because I bet we're going to see some similar kind of... We can go up or down, but I guess I've gone up. And we'll get other opportunities to go down. See here, this is like a little bit more natural. Apart from... Natural in the sense of a little bit more fitting to the environment, right? Um, in that we have a stone-faced smile backing onto the cliff. I would guess... I'm, I'm assuming they didn't drill or blast their way into the hard rock itself in here, right? So either this hole is very shallow, it doesn't go back deep at all, it just goes back to the rock and stays there, and that would explain not only why it's spread out so broadly, but why it has a second floor, right? Because it doesn't go back into the rock. But the facade of this hole is brick, right? I mean, it it doesn't exactly blend in to, I mean, it's not hidden, right? It doesn't blend into the rocky cliff. But if I just came across and, and saw this, I'd be like, okay, this is mostly rocky cliff, right? The only memory of like grassy knolls, right? From this is um, the, the, the turf ceilings, right? The turf roofs of these, which those are turf, right? The color looks a little bit weird, but yeah. Yeah, that's turf. That's grass. It's not the same color as a, as the grass over there, which is why I was thrown for a second. But yeah, actually, that's interesting. Even that, that's clearly grass over there. This might not be grass, but some kind of, like, more like a, well, different kind of grass. More like bush. More, more, it's not the same color as the bushes back there. Um... But, um, but yeah, I, I, um, it's not the same. 
this is more like, uh, you know, the hobbits tend to live in holes that have round doors. This is what I would have expected to find here. That over there, not what I would have expected to find. Like, let's pretend that somehow a rocky hill was um, transplanted up here. And here again, we have just houses, but they're all brick houses. Most of these seem more influenced by the local environment. They do tend to be... <laughs> they do. I'm so glad you're here to capture my words of wisdom, JJ. Um, they do tend to be mostly like horizontally sprawling right there are certain reminiscences of the traditional smile shape right um as well as the round doors of course but <laughs> most of these most of these are uh, um yeah the, the way that they're made of stone it's a little bit more adapted to the regular environment to the local environment. And here again, I assume. But wait, I don't have to assume. We can go in, because this is the inn, isn't it? How deep back does it go? Is it all stretching side to side this way? What is this, the stony leap? Yeah. Yep, I think there's going to be nothing off to the right. Oh, one. Uh, we can't get in. There's one door that does go in here. I wonder if what's in here is like some kind of storeroom that was actually carved out of the stone, or whether there was like a like, an, like a cave opening there that was utilized that they kind of built the house around, right? Um... Yeah, I was thinking something like wine cellar in there uh, to use the natural coolness of the interior of the cave. Yeah. Yeah, so there could be a cave in there that they, like a small cave or something, that they um, j built the inn around. Right. Good evening, Corey. Hey, Druid's Fire, good evening. Sorry, I was helping a friend do a thing. No problem. No problem. We're still sightseeing here. Okay, we can't go through any other doors. What's this book? Right, the Stony Leap. Leap, that's pretty interesting. Because, of course, we do well, have all of these convenient cliff sides. Yeah. Um... rather, I mean, I'm thinking, of course, of all of the fish that we had, you know, on the wall of the other one. Mm -hmm. And there's very little, what is this rather dull wall hang, hanging? But I thought it was like a, um, something where a painting would go, but it looks like it's the backside of a painting. Right, or like a very simple kind of woven rug. Yeah, I mean it's a tapestry, but it's the most dull tapestry I've ever seen in a 
in a Hobbit building. We get two of them. The boring tapestry and the just as boring tapestry flanking either side of the... Um, yeah, it does look like a rug. It would be a it would be boring even for a rug. For a wall hanging, it's kind of ridiculously boring. No, I don't think it's a window shade. No, because see the windows around, they look like this over here. And they have uh, like sills and trim standing out from the wall. I do like the food preparation area over here in the corner, but I always question how dirty all the dishes are in Middle Earth. Uh, well, you know. We got some nice hanging, uh, drying vegetables there. Yeah. Beets. Yeah, the herbs and vegetables drying are pretty cool. The beets. I like the beets. That does not look very sanitary. Well, you know, different standards of sanitation in worlds without dishwashers. Or refrigeration. Or refrigeration. Unless you live in Farachel. Yeah, well, remember that um, refrigerated, uh, ref refrigerated food was one, was one of the things that Tolkien said he did not like. And in fact, one of the ways in which he, like, defined Hobbit culture by his own similarity to it, was like, was preferring unrefrigerated food. So his implication is that the Hobbit's food was unrefrigerated and they liked it that way. That would make sense, um, because unless they were, like, well, I can also see why the hobbits may not want refrigerated foods because it would remind them of the, the fell winter. Well, maybe. I mean, it's it seems to me more about like I don't know what freshness. Like you you want to just have food that's actually fresh instead of food that's been mm -hmm. kept fresh through refrigeration. Well, because it's not really fresh refrigeration, as we all know. Right. And fresh food tastes better. It just it is. I've got to say that this whole like. Um, Wolverine hairstyle that I know <laughs> a lot of these guys are rocking is pretty it's pretty baller it is pretty baller yeah I, I do remember when these places came out and we knew that there was a new Hobbit race coming it was like we want this hairstyle and that hairstyle and this hairstyle and we didn't get a darn one of them oh really I don't think we got any of them can you get the like mutton chop sideburns that a lot of these guys are I also think you it's because hobbits have not had um, their overhaul yet. Like, the race of man can probably do something like that. Right. But nobody else has gotten them yet. Right. It's a project for 2024, we hope. Okay. Well. All right. Well, let's, um, let's go back outside. We didn't, we didn't get quite through the whole town. I want to finish up a little bit. Um, look around, because this is, seems to be the end in this direction. Yes, it is. Uh, let me go downstairs. So, um, most of this town is the, yeah, the brick houses up against the wall. I don't think we've seen a single genuine smile 
anywhere. No. Because it's all just rocky cliffs. I would have to think at least some of these houses were built up against caves in the cliff face. Probably. Probably. Or else they have time lore technology and they're bigger on the inside than they are on the outside. <laughs> right. I, 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 I was thinking of that, but I rather doubt it. Um, so covering cave openings seems a logical explanation in my mind. Yes. Do you think that part up on the top shelf there is like the uh, in-law apartment here? Absolutely. Maybe like the, you know, yeah, something like that. Or it could be the kids' room. Could be the, the kids' room. room. Yeah, could be. Or like the man cave or something. Um, now, I think the man cave is this little thing off to the side. With, with a little wooden shed? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe. Maybe. Um, but yeah, so that the majority of these hobbits are building their houses with local materials and resemble and basically resembling local things like shows that they have really kind of taken root here. They've kind of, to some extent embraced the identity of like, we are the cliffside hobbits. Right. Um, and yet the idea of the architecture of the basic architectural concept of the hole dug into the side of a hill um, still does seem to be basically dominant um, as most purely manifested here in this prelim in this first house that we saw our you know warning light house thing with the horn pointing towards mm -hmm. the cliff side and I don't think we've come any closer to explaining that by the way why yeah is I it I don't get it. I can understand it going out along the valley. Somehow. I think... Bounce off the wall. I, I think it's supposed to... I think it's supposed to bounce... Because we've got the other wall over there, too. So I think it's supposed to bounce back and forth. Maybe if it were pointed out towards the valley, it would not be heard as well by the houses on multiple levels of this town. But if you bounce the sound at the wall and it bounces back to the other wall and everything, it's going to be very echoey and bouncy, but you'll hear it more. Um, you'll hear it more in all of the vertical, you know, different vertical levels of the town, perhaps. Possibly. That's the best I got. I don't really know if that would happen in practice, but, uh, but I wonder. Okay, let's... Um, let's Let's end by heading, oh, it's a short distance. Let's head over to Lintrev and uh, see if there's there should be, I hope, a milestone there. Well, and there's at least a stable master for sure. There is a stable master for sure, so maybe it's not that far. I guess I'll get my horse. Um, so we'll just head over there, find the, if there's a milestone, we'll find it. Um, and then we will end there and we'll take a look at that so we can be ready to Look at that town next time. So, we're just, yep, we're heading this way and we're going to take a left at the first turning. Still grassy and tree covered slopes here and very lush and beautiful, but we're still climbing and we're pretty high up now. 
Okay, we've discovered Lintrav. Here we are. Oh, this, this is, is very Yondershire and Veal. It does. I agree. Okay, so here's the, sh the stable master. There is a milestone. Oh, good. I was a hoping there would day, be. Isn't it? Um, where's the milestone? Over here to the northwest. Okay. Oh, there it is. All right. Excellent. So we will come back here to Lintrev next time. Um, and next time should be next week. I don't know of any reason why I won't be able to, you know, but who knows? Uh, <laughs> hoping for no more disasters, but um, um, anyway, we'll see what we can do. Anyway, thanks everybody for joining us this week, and we'll see you guys next week. Bye now.